0: Hey, I'm Brett Gornick. I'm Jason Lobig. Welcome to the Live Better Podcast. As Nike trainers, international retreat leaders, and wellness advisors,
1: we help people from all different backgrounds push towards their potential, get healthy, and change the world. This podcast is about teaching others to actively pursue their entrepreneurial dreams, similar to how we pursued ours, and how to get and stay healthy doing it. We didn't start our careers in training
0: and wellness. Jason worked in public accounting, and I, Brett, worked in corporate retail until starting
1: our dream experiential wellness business, Live Better. What started as an idea for a protein bar led us down a path to build what Live Better is now, which performs everything from personal training and corporate wellness to international wellness retreats and yoga and meditation for kids.
0: We are here to encourage you to follow your dreams while holding you accountable. It's not easy, it's not always simple, but it is possible. Let's make today the best day ever. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Live Better Podcast. You've got Jason Brett here with Sean Swarner, and this is going to be this is going to be a doozy. Uh, we will we're going to dive into a lot of good stuff. Um, Sean has done probably the most insane shit we've had anybody do on this podcast, and. That is without considering a lot of the conditions that he has done them in, both um, with his physical state as well as where he's done a lot of things. Um, To introduce him, he is a speaker, author, performance coach. I love this term, adventurer, as well as a world record holder. Uh, Sean, he is checking in today from Colorado, which Jason and I are always jealous when people are in cooler places than us. So we will definitely have to make a trek out there. Do a hike, run around, and have some fun, Sean. Thanks so much for taking your time today to be on the show, and we're super excited to dive in and chat.
2: Oh, my pleasure, man. I, you were mentioning uh, uh, Colorado, and I, I think it'd be fun if you guys came out and trained for Kilimanjaro with me.
0: All right, you put down the challenge. I think uh, that's an easy accept, and uh, we'll be there. We'll be there shortly. Uh, speaking of Kilimanjaro, that is one of many places uh that you have hiked summited um talk us through let's talk let's talk about Kilimanjaro let's start there if we can start there I think we can (laughs) we can end in a really good spot lead me through that hike what does that feel like what does that look like what's the prep what's the execution um let's start there and then we'll we'll dive into all the other amazing stuff
2: yeah how long is this podcast
0: supposed to be (laughs) I mean,
2: I I actually, um, I'm leaving again, uh, July 20th, and this will be my 21st trip up Kilimanjaro. And what's insane is the average, and I didn't realize this until I did some research, but the average success rate on the mountain is 48%. So 52 people out of 100 don't even make it, but my groups are at 98% you know, double that of the average. And I, I think it's due to the fact that um, I've, I've used the same local guides, I've used the same porters, I've used the same cook, I've used the same every every everybody over there locals uh, for the past 19 summits. And then they don't treat us like clients anymore. They treat us like family. Like if you guys went, they would call you Kaka, which isn't shit. It's actually brother in Swahili. <laughs> so It's actually a, a term of endearment. They would call you Kaka. Um, and the women, they call them Dada, which is, which is uh, sister. But I also think it's due to the fact that I've, I've been integrating um, little bits and pieces of what I've learned climbing the other mountains, which I'm sure we'll get to, and then going through my two terminal cancers, which I'm sure we'll get to as well. But what I've learned and helping people with their personal core values, I, I, I help empower them to find a purpose for climbing the mountain. And and it's not just because uh, I think it was uh, Sir Edmund Hillary when they asked him, uh, you know, why why'd you climb Everest? His answer was because it's there. Yeah, if if you have a deeper underlying purpose, you'll have some more passion into what you're doing, and I think that really helps because on summit night, um, which is day the, e- the the night of the fifth day on the summit, so we actually summit on the sixth day, but we leave at uh, midnight. On the fifth, and then we we hike all the way through the evening, all the way through the night with our headlamps, and it's just, it's just it's it's an unbelievable trip to be honest with you. I mean, you're, you're going up there, you're a walking zombie in the middle of the night because you're so exhausted. And this is going to sound really bad, but when I get people to the top, I love seeing people cry. You know, it's 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 those good emotions. It's it's not hey I'm so sad and or you know hey it's it's such a long way down. It's hey I'm super happy that I'm here. So it takes, we do a seven day trip up and down the mountain, and then we actually fly into the Serengeti and we do a four day safari, which is just mind blowing. It's just, it's, it's, it's a life changing trip.
1: What a cool combo between the two of those. I also like the adventure part Uh, at the start, you get the group nice and intertwined um, and get this incredible experience. And then you get to go do something fun on the back end. That's amazing.
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. The, uh, it's it's kind of like unpacking everything at the end. Oh yeah, for
1: sure. And I'm sure some of those like laughs and stories are so much uh, uh, stronger as a result of that. Because we also run wellness retreats, and the way that we um, put the activities of the retreats together, we do all of the physical stuff at least heavier on the front, end. <laughs> and people bond through that. I think it facilitates connection. It facilitates vulnerability. Um, people are I think through physical challenge obviously find a lot of mental breakthroughs um, and uh, I would love for you when if, if we kind of circle back to like that uh, adventure itself I, I first just want to walk backwards one sec because you said these types of things are so much easier when you have a purpose um, and I think before we get too far into this, I do feel like your background is obviously incredibly relevant to your overall story and why you find a purpose in a lot of this. I think I want to start by acknowledging the fact that I think for some people who don't have a ton of inherent hardship, sometimes like reaching out and trying to find a purpose is a little bit harder, but you were given one sort of, um, or at least one was kind of forced on you after you have made it through several personal challenges um, and without putting any words in your mouth, I would love for you to walk through um, some of your background, starting with, I mean, you can go as as early as you want before your teenage years, but I know that that's partly when things started to get a little more difficult. So could you walk through just your personal story and share that um, and give people context for why that purpose has been so meaningful for you?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Kind of leading into it, segueing into it, the reason we do the Kilimanjaro trip every year is because it's a fundraiser for a cancer charity. And what we do is we actually we pay for a survivor's trip completely free of charge. And then it's the responsibility of that survivor to raise funds for next year's survivor, kind of paying it forward. And, and anyone can go. So if anyone's interested, just shoot me an email, sean at cancerclimber.org. But how that came about was because I was, I was looking at Everything I went through, and you—you you so eloquently put it—that I was forced. You know, my purpose was kind of forced on me. And through those personal challenges, it absolutely was because I'm I'm a two-time quote-unquote terminal cancer survivor. I was given three months to live at one point in my life. I was given 14 days to live at one point in my life. I was read my last rites. I was in a medically induced coma for a year, and I only have one functioning lung. So to say, to say that I, I I think I have a purpose is is I would say an understatement. And, and my my ultimate goal when I was younger was to be the first cancer survivor to climb Mount Everest. And that's where the whole thing started. But going back to those cancers, the first one at 13 years old, I was diagnosed with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And and I remember the doctor coming into the uh, uh, the hospital room, asking my mom and dad to step out in the hallway. And I, don't, I obviously, I didn't find this out until later because I wasn't there uh, where I didn't hear it. But the doctors were talking to my parents and they said, you know, we're sorry, but that's what your fo- your son has, fourth stage advanced Hodgkin's lymphoma. And unfortunately, he now basically has an expiration date. You know, so w- when I was growing up, I remember I was, I was completely normal until that happened. And I also remember being 60 or 70 pounds overweight three months after, uh, like three months into the chemo treatments. And I remember looking into the mirror and my hair was coming out. So it was coming out in chunks. Like if I grabbed my hair and I pulled it out, it would just fall out. There was, there was no resistance at all. I didn't have to pull it. It just fell out. And I remember looking into the mirror and literally not being able to recognize who I was looking at. Because I I had patches of bald spots on my head. Um, 60, 70 pounds overweight, there was no hope. There was no drive. There was nothing left of the person who I thought I was. I was essentially hopeless. And I I remember walking into the shower and while I was there, all all my hair fell out in in that, in, in the time I was in the shower. And I remember collapsing to my hands and knees, pulling chunks of hair out of the drain so the water could go down. And it was filling up because all my hair fell out in that one moment. And I also remember just sobbing, but thinking about what my friends were potentially going through that same morning when they were getting ready for school. You know, they were worried about the nicest clothes, the nicest hairstyles being popular. I was literally fighting for my life. I mean, can you, can you imagine what it was like night after night after night, it, closing your eyes, being terrified to close your eyes because you weren't sure if they were ever going to open again? That that's what I that was day in day out. I, I was I was faced with that every single night for about a year. I was terrified to fall asleep because I didn't know if I was going to wake up again. So eventually, I, I became comfortable in the uncomfortable, and I learned that I could only control certain aspects of me. I couldn't control uh, aspects outside of me, but also in that shower, you know, back on my hands and knees. I remembered that I, I didn't want to focus on not dying. I wanted to focus on living. And I think that perspective really shifted everything for my future. So that was the first cancer. Then the second cancer, I was 16. Um, I was going in for a checkup for the first cancer when literally in one day they found a tumor on an x-ray that was between my ribs and my lung on my right side, about the size of a golf ball. They found a tumor on an x-ray. They did a needle biopsy where they threaded a needle past my ribs to aspirate part of the tumor. They took out a lymph node in my neck. They put in a Hickman catheter in my chest, which was uh, like a permanent IV. They snapped open my ribs, removed the tumor, put a drainage tube in, and started chemotherapy in less than 24 hours. And this time around, the doctors diagnosed me with a type of cancer that affects three out of a million people with a prognosis of 6%. I mean, the the chances of me surviving both of these cancers because no one's ever had Hodgkin's and Askin's sarcoma is equivalent to you winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. It it was impossible. That's when they gave me 14 days to live. A man of the cloth came in, read me my last rites, and the hospital wanted to put me in uh, uh, hospice, You know, and, and they wanted me to write out a living will. And I have a brother who's three years younger than I am. I looked at my parents, I'm like, well, isn't isn't my brother gonna get my hand-me-downs anyhow like what the hell is a hospital want
1: <laughs> how do you think that those experiences shape you as a child differently than they might shape an adult because I think you're, you're it, it's it's kind of a catch 22, because when you're a child, that sort of is your world, like you haven't quite taken on these big adult responsibilities. And once you get through that, I I feel like as a child, you, you process like uh, present moments easier, because you don't have all these forward and backward looking thoughts. But at the same time, you're 13 years old, you don't have the like emotional stoicism you have after you've summited every world summit Everest and Kilimanjaro 21 times to have the fortitude to be like, best day ever, I'm going to figure this out now as an adult. Whereas conversely, I feel like as an adult, if you have been practicing those things for a long time, you might be able to weather that storm some. But for I I probably would venture to say most adults like that type of Experience where your mindset is a little bit more fixed, or at least solid, um, could kind of play the other way. Like, how, how do you think those experiences shaped you as a child differently from they might? How they might shape uh, an experience like that as an adult? Like, are you when you're looking at the experience, are you kind of grateful that it, you you had to go through that when you were younger, um, or is that this kind of a um, sort of catch-22, I guess. I, I don't, I'm kind of struggling how to put that in words, like how that would be different for a child maybe than an adult kind of in your scenario now that you've led kids, now that you've probably talked to some kids and led adults through these types of challenging experiences.
2: You know, I, that's a great question. I, I think it's regardless of what age, you, regardless of, of how old you are, cancer rocks your world. I mean, for the longest time, people would say, "Oh, I'm sick," or you know, Sean has—he's he, got the c-word. People would be afraid to say cancer. So, regardless of of how old you are, I think it's it's going incre- to it's just it's just going to rock your world to a different level. So, for me, going going through the first and the second one, you know, there were the worst things is the, the worst things that have ever happened to me. But in that same breath, I'm also going to say they were the best things that's ever happened to me. And I, th- I think it, it all depends on your age. So if, if you're 90 years old, my grandma's 99 years old. If she gets cancer, she, she's going to be like, hey, you know, I lived a good life. You know, and she has. I mean, looking at all the stuff that she's seen in her life is just tremendous. If it was like, let's let's just go backwards. Let's say my dad, you know, say 70, he's, he's going to be 74. You know, he might fight. He might be like, look, you know, my, my mom is, is 99 years old. I have, I have 20 some years left in my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue fighting. A child, I think, anywhere from, say, a, a, a newborn to 14 doesn't truly understand the ramifications of cancer. You know, they're, they're very malleable. And I think that they just do what they're told. And they say, okay, and and, and they feed off of their parents, too. So if their parents get scared, the child's going to notice that the kid's going to notice that, you know, the kids pick up on everything. And then I think from 14 to maybe 18 or 19, that would be different again, because it, it all boils down to what your personal core values are and where you are in that specific point of your life. You know, I I noticed when you were talking that you have a, a I'm guessing your marriage. I saw your your wedding ring. You know how how would you feel if if you got cancer? You you would fight because of your family. You know, you would fight for for whoever you're married to if if you have kids. I think it all depends on your each person's individual perspective on why they want to fight or why they want to give up. But for me, if, let's say I got cancer again, which I actually in January I had surgery. I have a uh, some spots on my back. They think is was long term uh, side effect from the radiation treatment. You know, the doctors went in there, they cut it out, and I have a nice scar that's probably six inches long on my back that goes along with the thoracotomy scar that goes from my right nipple to my spine on my right side. You know, and I can't feel. It. I mean, the doctor could have done surgery without giving me any, any no, without numbing me up because I can't feel anything. So the, the third time that I got cancer from that long term radiation f- effect, I freaked out. You know, I heard it. I, I, I lost it. I started crying. I, I, I thought to myself, well, shit! I've, I've been through it once. I've been through it again. I've been through it two times. I don't want to do it again. However, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make myself as comfortable as possible. And I'm going to continue fighting until my last breath. So I, I think it all depends on the individual and their purpose for living.
0: With that, and you having gone through those experiences, how do you, when you speak to somebody that hasn't, have them find their purpose? Um, we deal with that a lot, and we talk to people about, you know, using that word. I love that word, purpose, because I think once you have done that, you are eight. once you have found that, or are, are striving for that. You do whatever the hell you need to to get to where you need to go. And as somebody that has obviously t- done a lot with all of those circumstances, when you meet somebody, maybe they're climbing with you or you're giving a talk or you're on TV and somebody comes up to you after the show and says, I'm struggling to find my purpose. Um, I haven't had a, an event like that, that that was kind of propelled me to even think about it. Uh, and then obviously you have to take the action to do it. So where do you start with people?
2: Well, first of all, during my presentations and and when I meet people, I I, I tell them that I'm I'm the only person in history to ever climb Everest, the highest mountain on every continent, ski to both poles, and complete the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon. Right, the only person in history to ever do that. But the only difference between me and somebody else, I might have a, a warmer jacket than you. You know, that's, <laughs> that might be it. All you have to do is work on that gray matter, that six-inch gap between your ears. You know, there was, there was a, uh, a presentation I gave a number of years ago, and um, there's, there's always a queue of people wanting to talk to me afterwards, and I, I love hearing other people's stories. You know, I, I really enjoy that because I think you can learn something from everyone. And next up in the line was a lady, and I could see she'd just been crying because she, her mascara was streaming down her face. And she came up to me, and she latched on, and she just buried her face in my chest, and I held on to her while she was just absolutely sobbing. And me, I'm sitting here trying to choke back tears myself, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I have to be strong, I have to be strong, I keep it back, you know, and I'm, I'm choking back tears. And when she finally composes herself, She tells me that in the past six months, she lost her husband to cancer. She lost her son to cancer, and she got diagnosed for the third or fourth time with cancer in the past six months. And she told me that she had sleeping pills and alcohol in her hotel room, and she was gonna commit suicide. And she told me that she forced herself to go to one more presentation, and it just happened to be mine. And she looked at me and she said, you saved my life. So I think when, when, when people tell stories, if you can hit them on, on a personal level, you know, on an emotional level, it might tap into something that they're missing. It might give them that hope that they need to continue on, to continue putting one foot in front of the other, because sometimes that's all it takes. It was just a little belief that there's, there's something more to your life. There's something that could potentially bring you gratitude or, or understanding that you, you're not going to go from base camp to the summit in one instance. You know, one, 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 swoop. It, it literally takes one small step and putting it in front of the other one. And how you do that is help people understand what they value most. You know, is it family? Is it personal growth? Is it whatever it might be? It could potentially be different for everyone because there are almost 8 billion people on the planet and we all see the world from a different set of lenses, you know, a different set of eyes. And I really think it helps when people... A, stop looking at others and start looking at what they want. Because as soon as you go after someone else's goal, you potentially lose who you are and what you want. You start valuing things that you potentially didn't value before. So you need to stop whatever you're doing and stop worrying. It, It boggles my mind to see how many people are more concerned about what others think of them than what they think of themselves. And by by focusing on what you value most, you can have a list to help you make decisions in every aspect of your life. So once people understand what their personal core values are and what they value and what means most to them at the core of who they are, and they just understand what their own makeup, then they can start moving. they, they can start making conscious decisions moving forward in their lives.
1: I love the um, focus too on just a simple question of asking what you value most. And I think people, we have a hard time being um, locked in cities to clear space to figure those things out because there's so many people, things, outlets trying to tell you what to value that you don't have enough space, um, headspace, or actual physical space to figure those things out with as much distance. And I think that's something that has come up for us on running retreats. And I'm 100% sure that's th- that that has come up and you've realized running as many adventures to Kilimanjaro and doing as many of these um, personal challenges as you have is that getting to a place where the only three things you want are food, shelter, and water gets you out of this mindset that we need better car, nicer house, more clothes, just like sort of nonsensical additions to our life. And then when you're out in nature, it's a lot easier to clear that space to say, these are the things that I value. And if there's a group present, it's also extremely helpful to be surrounded by other people that are realizing those things at the same time, because then you have these amazing conversations that come about that aren't surface level elevator chats. They're real deep things after you've summited a mountain and that you get the emotional release from that. The conversations about what you value are much more truer without judgment when you're not, you know, you're not standing in someone else's apartment who you work with, watching, like seeing what clothes they're wearing, seeing what car they drive, what, what have you. Um, and I think I, that's what I've appreciated about so many of these adventures out in nature is that once you get yourself to a place where all you care about is food, shelter, water in an environment that sort of facilitates this open and free space to to care, like to really take note about what you value. Um, I love asking that simple question. I just, I feel like, in, you know, I, I think you would agree that that is facilitated so much easier in nature, doing something that is
2: physically challenging. Absolutely. It, it, one, one of the great things about being out in nature, and I'm, I'm going to go back to Kilimanjaro because it, it's so fresh in my mind because I just got done training and I'm <laughs> going to go out training again later today. But you are forced into the present moment. You, know, it, you, you remove the technology. You get rid of your cell phone. You're not on social media all the time and you start to feed your mind with what matters most to you. You know, like you said, what you need, food, water, shelter. In, in the mountains on Kilimanjaro, everyone is equal. When, when you get to base camp, the mountain doesn't care how much money you have. It doesn't care how many cars you have. It doesn't care how many houses you have. You peel back those layers, every single person starts at the same level. Everyone is equal the instant you, put, you set foot on that mountain. Except for those who think they're going to conquer the mountain. Because I, if it's you versus Mother Nature, she's going to kick your ass every single time. I don't care who you are. <laughs> so it's not the mountain you conquer. It's yourself, right? And I think going out in nature, it's, it's, it, it recharges your batteries. You get rid of all the noise because there's, 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 there's so many distractions all over the world. The, the, the world is, is noisy. So when you get out to nature, when you, go, to Kiloma- when you go, go over to Kilimanjaro, you can really hit the reset button and focus on what you value most and what means most to you. You know, th- this year I'm taking two um, mother-daughter combos. Last year I took a, a father-son combo. And it's a tremendous opportunity to really connect on that personal level. And it doesn't have to be with your family because you're right. When you're going out there with a team, that team becomes your family because you're all working towards the same goal. And I think if people just utilize that and get outside more, turn off the noise for crying out loud. Listen to your internal dialogue. And I don't mean those crazy voices in your head. I mean, you know, the the positive ones that are going to encourage you to accomplish amazing things. Listen to what matters most to you in that internal dialogue to push yourself forward. Not other people, not other stuff, you know, because there are so many, like I said before, there's so much noise and all the ads that you see on TV, all the ads that you see on social media, they're telling you, hey, this is what you need. This is what you need. They're making you feel, they, they want to make you feel like you're lacking. When in all honesty, you're not. You have everything you need.
0: On a personal question, what does yeah, we do a lot? Of, we're trainers and coaches, and, and helping people with their physical health. What does your training look like right now?
2: <laughs> right, right now. Um, so, let's see, I woke up at four thirty this morning. Did some work. I uh, before I do any work, I have a, a journal I actually made myself, um, where I, I have a core values assessment. I take that every three weeks to focus on what matters most to me. And then I have a bookend. I bookend my day. And in the morning, I write down my my value affirmation and I write down three things I'll do and then three things I will learn to do. And then in the evening, I write down five things I'm grateful for and I journal about one of them. So that way I'm not going to bed thinking, oh man, I wish I would have done that. Oh, I could have done that. I didn't do this. I go to bed being grateful for five things that actually I accomplished that day. So I I sleep like a baby. Well, I don't sleep like a baby. I don't wake up every hour crying. I sleep like a rock. Right. And then I do some work, and about 10 minutes from here, there's a set of stairs. It's it's insane because it just goes basically straight up. There are 200 of them. And I started off with doing that three times, up and down, up and down, up and down. Now I'm doing it six times. So today I did, what, 1,200 steps? And starting tomorrow, I'm going to get a backpack and put in about 40 pounds worth of water, you know, just in giant jugs. And I'll go up and down, up and down, up and down. I'll switch one leg for 10 steps or 20 steps or 50 steps, whatever. I'll alternate. And Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I come home. I do um, upper body on my gym in my office. Tuesday, Thursday, I'll do the rowing machine. And when I'm working out in my gym, I also have an altitude simulator. So I'm working out at 19,000 feet. And I also have a clear plastic tent that goes over my bed that I'm going to put on this weekend where I'm gonna start sleeping at, I live at about 7,000 feet, but I'm gonna move it up every, I'm gonna move it up 2,000 feet once every week until I get to roughly 19,000 feet. So I'll be sleeping at 19,000 feet before I go because what I'm doing by us, utilizing the hypoxic machine is I'm essentially pre-acclimatizing. So my body's manufacturing red blood cells and hemoglobin to acclimatize before I even get to the mountain, which gives me a bonus because I only have one, one lung. So I kind of need that.
1: <laughs> what is your what did the what did the prep for
2: everest look like maybe a little different from kilimanjaro uh well kilimanjaro i i don't train for as much as i did everest because everest is i mean as you know it, it's a pretty big mountain so i took it i took it more seriously and with that one wow i would do something every single day where i'd be going up and down you know a ten thousand foot peak I ended up carrying 200 pounds of rocks in my backpack up that one. But once a week, I would carry 100 pounds of rocks up 14,256 feet, over 18 miles, up something called Long's Peak. And I did that once a week. And I would also go up into the mountains in bad weather, full knowing that a, a bad day here in the Rockies was probably better than a good day in the Himalayas.
1: Do they give you, um, uh, when you sign up for an like, so how did you do it? Did you sign up? I'm assuming you went with on, like, some type of expedition. Um, did they, Do they give you prep things for that, or do they just kind of leave that to you, and they're just like, you know, show up with money, and here are your supplies, and you, you bring what was promised?
2: <laughs> Actually, that, that's a great question. When I first moved out to Colorado, I spe- specifically moved out here to train. And when I was training and I first moved out here, my brother was with me, he was going to be my eyes and ears at base camp. And we literally lived out of the back of my car, my Honda Civic for two months, and we camped for two months before we even found a place to, to stay. You know, my, my office at that time was the library and a, and a payphone bank. You know, I, I I imagine trying to call sponsors, you know. I'm, I'm I'm calling up these corporations saying, "Hey, I'm a two-time cancer survivor with one lung and I'm going to go climb on Everest and be the first cancer sur- sur- survivor to reach the top of the world." Click. You know, they they were <laughs> like, "No, that's that's physiologically impossible. Oh, can I have a number to call you back?" No, because it's a payphone. You know, it it just <laughs> it was insane. So I actually approached numerous Everest expedition organizers because you can't just show up in Nepal and be like, hey, I'm here to climb Everest. Let's go. Um, you have to get a permit. You have to go through a lot, of, a lot of things. And I approached numerous organizers here in the States, and they all laughed at me. They're like, it, it's impossible to do what you're trying to do. So I got in touch with a guy in Kathmandu who organized National Geographic's expeditions. And I figured if he could organize Nat Geo, he could probably organize me. So I bought a slot under Nat Geo's permit. Because under a permit, you can have 10, seven people, I think it is, seven or ten people. And just a slot for that permit costs $10,000. So it's it's a really, really expensive endeavor. So I, I was underneath the permit of Nat Geo. But I was off on my own because no one wanted the responsibility of a guy with one lung going up the highest mountain in the world. Like, no, nah, he's going to die.
0: With that, which of, which of all the things you've mentioned you've done was the, was the most physically demanding and why?
2: Probably Denali. You know, and I wouldn't even say the uh, the Hawaii Ironman. I love doing that one. That was the easiest thing I've done comparatively. <laughs> um, Denali, which is the highest mountain in North America, up in Alaska, took me three attempts to make it. The first time, I literally fell a hundred feet on the crux of the climb. It was just—it's called the, uh, the 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 face, basically—and um, I had fifty feet of rope between my climbing partner and I, and I lost my footing. So. When you're going on ice and glaciers, you have these things called crampons, which are metal spikes that you attach to the bottom of your boots. And they have front points that stick out from the front of your boot. So I was climbing up on this, this ice, and I lost my footing, and I rocketed down past my climbing partner, 50 feet of rope there, and then I f- kept going another 50 feet or- below him. And it's, it's weird because for me, I remember like perspectives, so for him and I. When I started falling, I remember I was on my back, I was sliding down, everything was in slow motion. And as soon as I started falling down, I thought to myself, well, this isn't good. <laughs> it's like I, I should probably roll over and try to stop. So I, I rolled over and tried to stop, and I remember snow just shooting up between my face and my glasses. I came to a stop, climbed back up um, to where I fell, and from my, my climbing partner, he said it was, it was over like that, you know, just instantly he was pooping his pants we both got down to camp and and we had to change our change our pants (laughs) but i remember looking up at the sky and and i'm a big believer in signs and i was like you know give me a sign let me know if it's my time to be here or not and i leaned back in my tent and somehow as i was leaning back in my hood caught my glacier glasses and snapped them in half i was like all right i get it i'm going back down so we left came back the next year and we were at 11 camp so 11,000 feet so it's like the third camp before and then going up from the third camp there's a fourth camp and then a fifth camp and you leave from the fifth camp for the summit we were at the third camp and we got more snow in two nights two days and two nights than the entire Alaska range did that whole winter and I remember waking up in the middle of the night and when it's that cold snow becomes an insulator So I was in my forty below sleeping bag, and I remember waking up sweating because I was so hot. I unzipped my sleeping bag, rolled over, and the tent was right by my nose. (laughs) I poked it, and I could feel the snow. And I was like, again, thinking, "Well, that's not good." So we ended up digging out our tent and our campsite, and we used our avalanche probes to find the other tents because when I got out, it was just a sea of white. You couldn't see anything. All the the, um, other tents were were covered. So we uh, we used the probes to dig. Um, to find other tents and we dug to the other tents like a trail and then dug out that tent and we found another one. And if you could take an aerial picture of that, it would be like a cross section of an ant farm. And because they got so much snow, we started running out of food because the avalanche danger was too high. We didn't want to keep going up. You know, I, I, I didn't get myself to through two cancers to kill myself on a hunk of rock and ice. So we decided, all right, well, we're going to go home. Literally, a week later, I got sponsorship from Frontier Airlines. They flew me back up there. I just managed to find some people going up from Vail, Colorado. The lady who was on that trip, whose place I took, she was in a bike accident three days before I found those guys. And they were looking for someone to take her spot. So, again, a sign. I'm like, all right, I'm going. Literally, on a perfect expedition schedule. Boom, 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 summit. Boom, 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 back down off the mountain. No problems. No problems. (laughs)
1: That <laughs> oh, just my gosh. sometimes you just can't force it. But and I think that's that's probably really important for people. Um, anybody who is doing like high altitude stuff is just not in their head. Like you, you can't fight that. Um, but for people that don't do those types of sports, it's not something that you can just force. Just because you pay the money doesn't guarantee that you get to the top every time. If she's Mother Nature is not cooperating, like you are not going.
2: Yeah, we've we've had numerous people on the Kilimanjaro trip. Type A personalities are like, I'm going to control the mountain. I'm going to control the weather. I'm going to control everything. I'm like, man, you really have no clue, do you? <laughs> You're going to be miserable going up this this, this mountain.
1: Yeah have you uh, Have you ever read Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez? I haven't. I have to check it out. Oh man, it's my—it's one of my favorite books. I don't think I have it sitting next to me. It's one of my all-time favorite books. And you would love it. It is such a great book. The—the um, the subtitle of the book is "Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why," and it's basically a—it's it's basically a look into um, survival situations. Well, mainly using um, mountain accidents as um, sort of like experiments in human thought like people's decision making um people's uh like survival techniques why certain things happen and sort of like building systems around like well if um if you get lost how does your mind map the area around you how does it tell you stories whether they're true or not true and it's just very interesting to try and rationalize like why a three-year-old could walk around the Amazon and live for 10 years and why a full functioning, like adventurous adult who knows what they're doing dies in a night. Um, And there's just a a very unique look at sort of the human mind in some of these conditions. And then it also pulls back and talks a lot about like mental resiliency and um, emotional control. And that's also something I wanted to ask you about, which is a good segue is that can you pull away any specific stories or instances from any of these summits or adventures that you've done that have taught you kind of like very, very specific lessons instead of just the overarching one that, you know, doing these things has kind of helped your
2: physical and mental health? Yeah, actually, one, one does come to mind, and it was the second trip on denali that i mentioned earlier i was going up with two guys who thought they were more experienced than they were thought they were smarter than they were thought they were stronger than they were and this has been my second time up there and i told them look this this is how you do things to get your body acclim- uh, acclimated you go from 11 camp that i mentioned before where we had all that snow and you go to a place called windy corner and you dig a cache." Like you dig a hole in the snow and you bury some stuff. You go up with a full pack, bury it. And then when you're ready to go up, then you take your sled because there's a, a plastic sled you carry behind you. And that way, when you get around Windy Corner, you pick up your stuff, load your sled, and then continue on to 14 camp because it's, it's not as steep. You know, it's, it's, it's fairly simple. So this guy thought he was, he, he, he thought that he could handle the extra weight. He thought he could handle everything. And he literally put our lives in danger. Because going around Windy Corner, his sled slid down. Um, He almost lost all the food that he had for for him, you know, for a week or whatever. And I just, I had had enough. And I just, I I threw my skis up in the air. I went after him. I threw my poles at him. I just got super upset. And I I realized looking back at it now, obviously that's that's not the way to react. (laughs) You don't want to do that. You're on the same team and i realized that you can't like we were, i was i was ready to throw punches and i i am like the calmest person ever because of everything i've been through like i i don't get upset at anything really and this just really it, it pissed me off and i was ready to t- to take him down i was i wanted to throw him into a crevasse and i realized you know you can't you cannot be emotional and logical at the same time and if you're fighting against your your teammates You all, you all have the same goal. You know, you want to make it to the top safely. And we, we didn't because of, of all of the reasons I told you before, we made it to the, the 14 camp and we started running out of food and we started running out of food. One reason is because of all the snow and because of the weather that I mentioned, but also because when his sled tipped around, it tumbled and we lost probably a week's worth of food, you know, just went down the, went down the mountain somewhere. So I think the biggest takeaway is always remain calm, never freak out, take a deep breath. If you have to walk away from the situation because you cannot be emotional and logical at the same time, calm yourself down, then go back and try to get into, I should have gotten into his head. You know, why'd you do that? You know, what's going on? What, What was your thought process behind that? Try to understand his perspective as opposed to just mine.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, going back to that book reference, actually I read that quite some time ago. And that was the first time I'd ever had that explained on like a physiological level. And that your emotion and reason literally are two completely separate responses, and your emotional response is faster than your logical response. And it should be. Like you don't want to have to think through making real time life choices like that you need your body to react faster than you can logically think through a survival situation or a situation where you're in dire danger however most people never take the time to process or train themselves on which one to use the that emotional side because it's faster they just let that run away instead of practice things to slow down that train when it shouldn't be revving that fast and then we all become volatile and impatient and, (laughs) and irritable, um, because we let that response just come up faster. And I think Brett and I teach a lot of meditation and talk a lot about, um, emotional control and using that as a tool. I think nature really helps with some of that, um, at times when you're not at 20,000 feet, (laughs) um, when it's really hard, I would imagine to be that oxygen deprived and logical, Um, when you come back down from that, when you start to realize that that you can't be hyper-emotional and hyper-logical at the same time, how do some of those things then play out in day-to-day when you're, when you're being a performance coach and when you're teaching? How do you distill that down into that being a helpful tip, walking around in everyday life rather than just on a
2: mountain expedition? Well, I think coming back you know, off the mountains, it's completely different because it's, it's not life or death. First of all, um, and and some people get upset in real life, thinking it is it is life or death, but when it's really not, you know, in the, in the in the grand scheme of things, your your life is not in danger. That, that's perceived fear that you have. That's just kind of baking your mind to think, oh, I'm in danger. No, you're not. And I think one of the best tools to utilize is just take five deep breaths and just listen to five things that you, you have around you or you, you hear around you. You know, I, I do that all the time. And, and whenever I get anxious or nervous, I literally take five deep belly breaths and I just sit there and I pick out five separate sounds that I hear because it instantly ground grounds you in the moment. And you, you, you're you not worried about the future. You're not worried about the past because if you're, if you're anxious, you're probably worried about the future. If you're depressed, you're probably living in the past. But doing that breathing exercise and picking out five things that you hear now helps you be in the present moment. And then in the grand scheme of things, then you can realize, okay, now that I'm calmed down, physiologically I'm calmed down, I can then listen to you know my wife, my brother, my mom, my dad, the, my coworker, whoever it might be, and you can potentially see another person's perspective because then I ask myself different questions like, cause this, this isn't about me because what I say is about me, what you hear is about you. So how am I interpreting what that person's saying to be incorrect or, you know, because for the most part, people, people aren't inherently mean and they're, and they're not going to say something to you to, to purpose, purposefully anger you. It's more. It's more often than not just how it's interpreted incorrectly. So I always, I always tell myself, whatever you know, what, what I say is about me. What you hear is about you. So if if I'm getting angry at, we'll just use my wife as an example. We never get into arguments, but she just walked in. So I'm just going to use her as an example. Yeah, I always think to myself, okay, and, and again with translation because she from, she's from Puerto Rico, her first language is Spanish. I'm like okay, well, what's what's the translational issue here? You know, how am I, how am I receiving her message improperly and how else could it be translated? You know, I think that really helps a lot.
0: That one I think is, is super important. And I think just being able to break that down and I think honestly doing physical exercise and, and taking our, our bodies and minds to states where things are uncomfortable can be a great teacher and tool for a lot of those things. And then also, like you said, being able to do a lot of those tactics when we are in a comfortable space, like you're in your home or you're not in a, in a dire strait, ha- it's it's good to be able to practice on both ends of that spectrum. So wherever you are, you're able to, to really feel and, and understand how to respond versus react. And obviously you've had to, you know, you've done that a lot and you've gone through a, a lot of different, uh, self-induced problems like that as well as some that were that were given to you and i think that it's an important way to do that jason and i before we popped on here were looking at one of your past interviews and couldn't couldn't but couldn't do anything but laugh because you were asked a question and the response was that every single day for you is the best day ever (laughs) And that is our motto as well at Live Better. I'm in our office right now. We have a wall in the corner that everybody that comes into our office signs and writes best day ever and puts their name on it. And I think in that interview, you mentioned, you know, after everything I've gone through for me to be here is a blessing and is something I have to take advantage of and we live that. And it's not some fluffy thing. It's about waking up, like you said, and doing your morning exercise, whether that you know you do a physical and mental exercise to set intention for the day and to just go out and execute. And then at the end, to be grateful for, for the things that, that transpired and the things that you decided to go do. With that being said, uh, Sean, if you could wake up to tomorrow and do anything, which you've got some really cool stuff coming up, Uh, what does your best day ever look like if you could choose the exact thing to transpire for a day?
2: (laughs) That's a great question. I don't think I've ever thought of it. Um, If I could have the perfect day right now, because I have so much on my plate, everything would go away. All the, these, I think I have, let me check real, real quick. Uh, All my 773 emails in my inbox would be answered, (laughs) automatically taken care of. And I would be somewhere in the Maldives, chilling by the beach. And I know these these don't go hand in hand, but I would would somehow magically transport um, steel drums over there so I could listen to steel drums while I'm in the Maldives sipping on a pina colada
0: all right we'll see you tomorrow <laughs> we're gonna make that happen
2: is that sounds nice now That's ask great. ask me uh you know when i'm visiting puerto rico or when i'm somewhere else it would be going up Kilimanjaro. yeah you know it, it i think it all depends on the on the situation and and what's happening during the day so i i just noticed that i like i said have almost 800 unread emails you know, I'll I'll eventually get to them. So, you know, it it, it all depends.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, I think one of the things that we pull from this conversation, and obviously, just you know, looking you up beforehand, is you know, it's it's something that it's really cool, and obviously, it's beyond inspirational to see what you are doing um, beyond what you've done, and I think that you know, it's one of the things for. As that happens too, to recognize that there are normalcies, there are there are unread emails in people's inboxes. It's not just climb a mountain, get home, train, climb another mountain. Like there's business, there's life, there's relationships. I think a lot of times, like you were mentioning too, getting caught up caught up in social media, comparing yourselves to others. You know, this doesn't mean that everybody that has to listen to this episode has to go climb all these summits and do all these things. But what it does mean is that the pursuit I think is what I I take for you is the pursuit of this purpose. It's the, it's the constant evolution of self and just continuing to dive in and really just saying, Hey, I'm here today. I have, you know, I have today, like that's it. Like tomorrow already happened and, or tomorrow is, isn't guaranteed. And yesterday already happened. So we got to do what we can do today. Um, And some days that's taking the inbox down. Some days that's climbing, uh, 200 flights of stairs with 300 pounds on your back. And some days that's summiting, uh, some summiting a mountain, whether that's, you know, literally or figuratively. Um, And Sean, I think, you know, it's, it's really just special to, to hear your story and, and to hear that you're not done, um, that you're still continuing on. So um, what would be kind of like one last bit of inspiration, motivation that you could, you could leave our listeners with.
2: Well, I I think you kind of hit the nail on the head where, you know, a lot of people might hear my story and think to themselves, well, hell, I could never do that. You know, and, and, and they, they could be right. They could be wrong. I don't know, but everyone has their own mountains to climb. Everyone has their own proverbial Everest and it could be just getting off the couch and walking around the block. Whatever obstacle is in your way, whatever you want to accomplish, just take that first step and understand that, um, consistency is more important than intensity you know it, it doesn't happen in in one day you have to keep after it just keep one foot in front of the other and know that your first step is never your last and if and if you do have that that deeper purpose you know you, you can find your passion and with that passion you can find meaning and a lot of people are looking for um the meaning of life or or um, the life. That's it. Instead of looking for the meaning of life, just try to find a, a life of meaning.
0: That's it. It's Awesome. Sean, where can people find out about you if they want to hire you to speak, see what you're up to, read one of your books, uh, or climb with you? <laughs> or all <day> about it. <laughs>
2: it's the easiest question you've asked all day. Just go to go to SeanSwanner.com. S-E-A-N. And then like the Warner Brothers, but slap an S on the front. Seanswarner.com. Awesome.
0: Sean, thanks so much for uh, for your time. And um, it'll just it's great. And then I think Jason and I have to take you up on the on the challenge. So we will be summoning soon.
2: Uh, <laughs> which, which challenge? The Kilimanjaro challenge or the Maldives challenge?
0: Yeah, maybe we'll start with the Maldives <laughs> and we'll, we'll go from there. <laughs> awesome thanks so much sean and have the best day ever
2: uh, you too guys thanks so much